0: worthy, precisely because you're holy. The angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the elders fall at your feet and cast their crowns before your throne. And the whole universe cries out that you are great and glorious and wonderful. And all of the redeemed with hearts pricked with joy, we sing holy, holy, holy. What a wonderful name. What a beautiful name. It's the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would draw us deeper into the presence of Christ now. and you would let us hear his voice through your word. That you would open our hearts to the things that God has for us. And that you would close our minds onto the truth. Help us, O Lord, to hear and to believe and to live by faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, I want to welcome those who are visiting with us this morning. I'm Pastor T, one of the uh, three pastors here at Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of the church family, we're really glad that you're with us. Can't think of any place we would rather you to be. Uh, we're about to turn our attention to God's Word now. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning, you might be helped to have one in your lap. So just raise your hand. Uh, and these brothers are passing out Bibles. If there's anyone who needs a Bible, we'd be happy to uh, bring you one. And if you do not own a Bible, uh, please let that be our gift to you. Uh, We would love for you to have God's Word uh, in your home, and more than that, in your heart. And uh, we would love it if you would accept that as a gift from us as a church. I'm wearing my three-on-three basketball tournament shirt this morning, a little product placement, a little advertising. Just to strike fear in the hearts of Alex Woods. (laughs) I'm going to stop picking on Alex. That's my dude. That's my dude. He just can't check me. But, you know. Do come out, meet our neighbors, enjoy a meal. I think registration's at 9. I think we begin to play at 10. That's on August the 3rd, I believe it is. And so let's come out as a church family and get to know uh, our neighborhood and to serve our neighborhood in that way. If you're visiting with us this morning, you've landed in the middle of a sermon series that we've called Being the Church. Being the Church. Um, We call it that because we don't want to play church. We call it that because plastic Christianity is not saving Christianity. We want to be the people of God that we were made to be. And to do that, we have to both understand what the church is and then understand something about how God calls us to live together. So we spent the first five or five sermons in this series thinking theologically about what the church is. It is the people of God. Uh, living together on the mission of God, going to the place that God has prepared for us. But spiritually, we are also the body of Christ. Each of us are members in his body, united to each other and united to Jesus, who is our head, who is the only head of the church, the sufficient head of the church, and whose life flows down into the church itself. We are the body of Christ. Now, that body moves together and acts together according to the will of its head. Uh, and, it, and, and much of what the Bible teaches us about being the church is summed up in this little couplet these two words, one another. But they're all throughout the New Testament. Various kinds of one another phrases which define how it is we are meant to live together as the body of Christ. And as we live that way, uh, that spiritual truth that we are united to Jesus begins to take practical shape in the world. Last week we took our first one another from John chapter 13 where Jesus instructs his disciples to love one another. Just as he has loved us, we are called to love each other. And this morning we come to another vital one another. It it might be the most vital one another of our age. I I say that because our age, we may not be unlike other ages, but we, we, we feel acutely in our day the potential and the reality of division. Across all kinds of lines not just as the world that doesn't know Christ divides itself and tears itself apart in many kinds of arguments and disputes, but also among the people of God. We find ourselves challenged to maintain harmony, to maintain unity, to agree together. And we can find it easier to judge and divide instead, can't we? And you know what's what's deep? is that the almost none of the divisions and the temptations to pull apart from each other, to judge each other harshly, have anything to do with the central teaching of the Christian faith. It's usually over opinions and preferences. Uh, you know the old sort of illustration of this, churches dividing over the color of the carpet. Well, the color of the carpet ain't never saved nobody. Nobody. And yet it's the kind of thing that we tear ourselves up about. Some churches tear themselves up over whether or not children should be homeschooled or go to Christian school or go to public school. And ain't no schools in the Bible. All kinds of things have tempted Christians to reject each other rather than to accept one another. And so this morning in Romans chapter 14 and 15, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there, Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, down to chapter 15, verse 7, we want to meditate on what the Bible calls us to do with regard to accepting one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Romans chapter 14, if you're new to the Bible, this is in the New Testament, it's about the sixth book or so, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, And then we're on chapter 14, that's the big number. And we're beginning with verse 1, that's the small number on the page. I'm going to read down to verse 7 of chapter 15, and then we're going to come back and unpack it. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Or you, why why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever is not, does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I want us to organize our thoughts in three sections this morning. First, we want to observe the command in the text the command. And secondly, we want to see the the context, the context in which that command is given. And then think about our own context. And then we want to consider the strategies, the strategies for accepting or welcoming one another. The command. We see the command there in chapter 14, verse 1, and in chapter 15, verse 7. Verse 1 says, welcome him. Chapter 15, verse 7 says, welcome one another. It's the bookends of this section. They use a fancy word. It's an inclusio. Uh, it's, It's a repeated idea at the beginning and the end of a section of Scripture, which means everything in between belongs to that theme. So all that we've just read is about accepting or welcoming one another. Now, I keep saying accepting one another because that's how the NIV translates verse 1, accept the one who is weak in faith. The King James puts it this way, receive the one uh, who is weak in faith. All those translations are fine, but but I actually like the ESV better because the notion of accepting one another or receiving one another sounds too passive for what's actually being said in the text here. When we use the word to accept something, we usually, usually use it to describe a circumstance you can't do anything about. I try to change it, but I can't change it, so guess I got to just accept it. We use that word most often as a kind of resignation, a kind of giving in to a situation or a circumstance, and and that's not what's here. The word welcome is better because I think it implies a a glad and active reception of someone. So it's not just, oh, okay, that brother didn't join the church, I guess I got to, you know, Got to pray for him when I come to him in the directory and I guess I got to invite him to the next potluck or whatever. No, it's not passive acceptance. It's, it's glad and active. It's a happy and, and willing, even eager embrace of the other person. And so the text is calling us here to recognize something good and valuable in every other Christian in our church family. We are to welcome one another. But now notice the text is also specific here in terms of who it applies this to in Romans 14 verse 1. There's a specific group of people in mind. The church is called to welcome the one who is weak in faith. The one who is weak in faith. Now that is not a reference to a new Christian. And it's not a reference to an immature Christian. It is instead, um, uh, it has nothing to do with those things, it is instead a person who, who has a weak conscience, right? The, the conscience is the internal voice that God gives every one of us that teaches us the difference between right and wrong. As a little boy, I used to watch cartoons and uh, maybe they still do this on some cartoons, I don't know, but uh, you'd have a character who had some major choice to make, and they would be thinking about the choice, and poof, a little angel, cartoon angel would be over his shoulder trying to encourage him to do right, and then poof, a little cartoon devil would be over the other shoulder, you know, arguing for him to do wrong. And so he's, he's standing there having a battle with his conscience, the voice that calls him to do right, and the flesh which calls him to do wrong it's that inner voice that Paul has in mind when he says accept the weaker brother the one with the weak conscience now in this text notice the one with the weak conscience is the one with a lot of rules it's the one who makes a lot of rules about how to live as a christian and they think of that as strength so the problem with having a weak conscience is you often don't realize that your conscience is weak because you think that Christianity is about rule-keeping. So you got these folks with a, with a weak conscience who are uncomfortable with freedom. They not only want rules for themselves, they want rules for everybody else too. And they tend to be the most argumentative and judgmental folk in a congregation. These are the ones the text says, however, we are to welcome or accept. Now one more thing to observe about this command. We are to welcome one another, but notice now not to quarrel over opinions. We're not to use acceptance as a trap to argue. You ever had the experience where you're maybe at, at work and uh, you're minding your own business, doing what you got to do, or uh, maybe you're just talking to some people after church and somebody asks you a question that starts like this, hey, man, what, what do you think about filling the blame?" And, you know, you think it's a question. <laughs> and so you answer the question. You ain't thought about it long. You know, you're just there having conversation. You answer the question and the next thing you know, they're hitting you with all their arguments, Okay, that's not what we're supposed to do. It says to welcome one another, but not to disputing about opinions, or as the NIV put it, not to argue over disputable matters, which is the other thing to know about this command. What the command has in view is not the black and white truths of the Bible and the central truths of the Bible. What the text has in view are the opinions that Christians have In matters of freedom, in matters that are not solved in a black and white way by the Bible. So, the Bible envisions that as Christians, we have been set free to live for Jesus, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And we should not allow ourselves to be entangled again by a yoke of slavery to the law. That's the same verse, Galatians 5, verse 1. So, we have been set free to live free in Christ. Now, the first thing you have to figure out about freedom is what to do with it. You got to form some opinions, you got to make some judgments. And other good Christians might reach different judgments than you. Okay, that's the context into which this command is spoken. Christians who are free, arriving at different opinions about a matters that can have different answers and be debated. We are not to quarrel over opinions, but we are to welcome one another. Let me put it this way. Strong and weak need to be most welcoming where we have the least clarity from the Bible. Strong and weak need to be most welcoming of one another where we have the least clarity from the Bible. Where the Bible is loud, Christians ought to be loud. Where the Bible is quiet, Christians must be quiet to grant freedom. Now, a model for this, the text says, in chapter 15, verse 7, is Jesus. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And the question becomes, well, how did Jesus welcome us? Well, Jesus welcomes us gently. The gospel says, he says in the gospels, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And Jesus welcomes us despite our weaknesses and our sins. The Bible says, for while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. And Jesus welcomes us completely. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes there that there is now therefore no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not like he accepted you partially and still holding something over your head. He accepted you, and Jesus welcomes us joyfully. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He saved us joyfully. And now he calls us to welcome each other the way he has welcomed us. So a couple quick questions of application. Would you say you are a person who gladly and actively welcomes your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you think yourself stronger in the faith than someone else, do you welcome those who are weaker in the faith? And vice versa. If you acknowledge that on some level you are weaker in the faith than some others who have more freedom than you, do you welcome and embrace them gladly in their use of their freedom? Or are you the kind of Christian who argues about matters of opinion and do not accept the views of others? I think it's important for us to get clear where we are in this text. Now, let me give you the context Uh, there in Rome. So second point here, I want to think a little bit about the context. There are two specific issues that are being addressed um, by way of example in this text. The first one is in Romans 14.2. Look there with me. The Bible says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Vegetables. So genuine Christians were disagreeing over what Christians should eat. Now, on the matter of dietary rules, I have a strong conscience. <laughs> Comes from a strong appetite, right? I, I, I eat anything, almost. Not chitlins. And <laughs> really not vegetables, but you know. So they, they, they argue a teetotaler on the vegetables. So they... So, So dietary laws is one thing here, right? Now, the second one is in verse 5 that that was sort of causing problems in Rome. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So genuine Christians in the church at Rome were differing over whether they should observe special days or not. This will sound like sacrilege, but my my wife, she, she likes to make a big deal of Christmas, Honestly, Christmas is like another day to me. I mean, I, I like remembering the Lord's birth and celebrating it on some level, but like hanging all them trees, them lights and trees and all that, she just be like, joy to the world, the Lord has come. I go out in the basement, man, lock the TV room. <laughs> and she judges me too, I want y'all know. So one person esteems a day highly, the other person esteems it just like all the others, and, 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 and yet there, there's not a right or wrong there. It's just a difference of opinion. But notice now, in Rome, it wasn't simply that they had a difference of opinion of, about eating and days. They were judging each other based on these opinions. Look with me in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, and then again at verse 10. Paul asked a rhetorical question in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or notice this, or, or you, why do you despise your brother? So it wasn't that they were merely differing over opinion. They were actually condemning the persons who didn't share their opinion, and going a bit further and despising the person who did not share their opinion. These arguments, as you might guess, were ruining the harmony, the unity, and the love of the church. Christian brothers and sisters were beginning to condemn each other as not Christians, as not saved, as not holy, not because they were breaking the moral commands of God, but because they were differing on opinions that were disputable. It's interesting. I've heard it said, and I've sometimes said, if you ever want to get your theology right, study the book of Romans. So Romans is just high, great, glorious theological truth about God and and his plan of, of salvation. Some of the greatest theological ideas in the Bible are systematically treated here in this book. But there's an interesting relationship between serious theology and church unity. It's often the case that churches and Christians with the most amazing theology, they think, find it difficult, most difficult, to accept people who disagree with them. You ever heard of the cage stage Calvinist? That person who just discovered Reformed theology. And now they see election under every verse. And if you don't agree with them about election, they will beat you to death and leave you in an alley arguing about this great theology. Let me put it this way. If your theology is as great as you say it is, then you should not have a lot of time for forming and debating your opinions. If your theology is as glorious as God is, who is infinite himself, all of your time should be consumed thinking about this God and delighting in this God, not bickering with your neighbor about something that God ain't even said anything about. If, if our theology, if we have great theology, but we find ourselves arguing about our opinions, listen, beloved, then it is most likely that we are the ones who are weak in faith because we can't accept those who differ from us. That's Rome. What about our day? What does the Christian church argue about in our day? Over what issues are Christians judging and condemning uh, and even despising of the Christians? Or, or more specifically, for us as a church, what topics tempt Anacostia River Church to judge and despise and to argue about opinions? I want to suggest at least two, politics and Race. That sound about right to y'all? Politics and race. Now, God has blessed us to be a very diverse church. We have people here from all over the world. In fact, help me with this part of the sermon. If, if I call out your, your sort of nation, your home nation or nationality, just, just stand where you are and raise your hand. I mean, we, we've got people here from Nigeria. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Side of Nigers roll, man. That's how they roll. We got folks here from Nigeria, Cameroon. Folks here from Congo. Congo. Uh, Guyana. Alright. Looking at Miss Teresa back there. The Bahamas. Ooh. Alright. Haiti. The territory of Puerto Rico. Alright. Brazil. All right, <laughs> Barbados, Panama, Ethiopia, Eritrea, excellent, Rwanda, England, see those are the folks who are traveling right now, Zimbabwe. That's to say nothing of people from foreign countries like California and Colorado. <laughs> Nor is it to mention the saints who have parents from multiple ethnic backgrounds. We are a diverse church from many backgrounds. So it's funny, I, I've been, a, brother, a good brother asked me the question, what kind of church we are we? I've been thinking about it for a couple weeks now, and uh, usually the, the, the sort of tension is between, are we a black church or something else? Neither. We're a church church, <laughs> we're, we're a biblical church. The word church is inescapably multi-ethnic. God is building a people from every people to make them one new people. That, that's who we is. <laughs> We're a church church. And we have people here from all up and down the economic ladder. Right? And then there's this reality. We, we are a politically diverse church. Honestly, I'm encouraged by the political diversity. I love it. I've been a Christian over 20 years. I've served as a pastor in four churches in two different countries, in different settings, small town, North Carolina, um, big city, D.C., in the Caribbean islands. I don't know that I've ever been in a church or known a church that's more diverse than we are politically. We've got Democrats and Republicans. We've got independents and libertarians. Um, Given our international composition, I would guess we have some folks here who are socialists and perhaps even nationalists. If we only went by the political labels themselves, we would be a tremendously diverse church. Never mind the opinions themselves about which we differ and have ideas. We are remarkably diverse. Now, with all of that diversity, Living in a neighborhood that's 90% African-American in the nation's political capital. How can we be a congregation that does not think hard about and apply the Bible to questions of race and politics? It would be a colossal failure in Christian discipleship, given who we are and where we live and where we bear witness. But we got to do that in a way that welcomes one another, that accepts one another. So what I want to do in the time that I have left, how long that be, I don't know, is is give you 10 strategies for welcoming one another from Romans chapter 14 and 15. Ten strategies for welcoming one another, for creating harmony as a diverse church, church, and uh, creating harmony despite the differences of opinion we have about matters of freedom. Number one, refuse to despise those who differ from you refuse to despise those who differ from you. That's what we see in verse 3, chapter 14, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So, now if you are feeling like you're a person with a weak conscience and you need a rule, here's your first rule. You may not despise your brother or sister for differing with you on some matter of conscience. Those who, are eat, who, those who eat are the ones who are strong in faith. Their conscience allows them the freedom in eating without feeling like they're sinning. Those who abstain are the weak in faith. Their conscience will not allow them to eat certain foods without feeling guilty of sin. Now notice, the Bible does not say, let the strong dominate the weak. It does not say, let the weak convince the strong to take their opinion. It says, stop judging each other critically. Just stop it. Refuse to do it. And notice the reason that we should stop judging people over opinions and disputable matters. It's because God has already welcomed them. How are we going to condemn those that God has already accepted in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Refuse to despise those who differ. Number two follows from number one leave judgment to God. Leave judgment to God. Verses four and five. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's so rich and beautiful. That's so good. The Bible says that our fellow Christians are not our servants to judge. They don't belong to us. We didn't save them. We didn't die for them. We didn't raise from the grave for them. They belong to another master, namely Jesus Christ. And it is God who will decide whether they stand or fall. And the text does not leave that in question. It says they will be upheld because God is able to make them stand you realize that we don't we don't we're not justified by our opinions in disputable matters That's not what gets us across the the finish line. That's not what gets us declared righteous at the bar of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that, that creates our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that is accounted to us through faith in him and faith apart from any works or any opinions that we have. So if we differ in some matter of opinion, that is not grounds for us to start questioning each other's salvation. Instead, we are to look at our brother and sister and we are to say, God will make you stand. That's how you handle the difference. You get to a point where you can't talk no more about that with this particular person. You think they're wrong in their opinion. You think you're right. And harmony is starting to be affected and you feel yourself tempted to think that this person might be warped and sinful and not saved. Come back to verse 4 and 5 and just smile. Say, brother, sister, God is able to make you stand. It's going to have to be God because your opinion jacked up, but God's able to make you stand. We need to affirm one another's salvation, beloved, in these matters of disputable opinion. Number three, be fully convinced in your own mind. Be fully convinced in your own mind. That's what we see there in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Remember, this is about disputable opinions in which Christians can disagree. So we're talking about issues on which Christians have freedom in Christ. And again, notice, the Bible doesn't say, make the other person think what you think. Battle it out until somebody's opinion changes. What the Bible requires is that we know what we're talking about each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, I don't mean be stubborn in your messed up opinion. I think it means if you're going to have an opinion, make sure it's an informed and sound opinion. Opinions can be wrong. So we need to work to get things right as best we can and to get things settled by sound reason as best we can. Listen, you're you're entitled to your opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion. But that doesn't make every opinion equal. Doesn't make every opinion right. In in a lot of conversations about race and racism, for example, the, the, the conversations are set up such that there are winners and losers in the conversation, and so that every opinion is viewed as equally valid. But friend, that's a trap. There are a lot of ignorant opinions about race and racism in the world and in the church. There are a lot of people out there talking loud who've not ever actually read a book, have a friend from a different racial group, sort of thought through their ideas, they've just got opinions. That person needs to do the hard work of learning something, of growing, of having something to say that's informed not just repeating what their favorite political commentator has said on the subject. There's a better way, a way that leads to acceptance and welcoming. Listen, the main person you need to convince, according to this verse, is yourself. Be fully committed and affirmed and convinced in your own mind. Allow others to have their views, learn from their views, Do do your homework by reading multiple sources from different angles on the issue and then arrive at fully formed opinions that that convince you. And people who are fully convinced, this is the interesting thing. People who are fully convinced in their own minds have even more freedom because of it. If you know what you know, then somebody claiming something different doesn't threaten you. It's only when you're insecure in what you say you know that somebody differing from you makes you kind of lose it and makes you want to sort of reach out and control them. See, being fully convinced and having a sound opinion actually is part of what creates more freedom. It helps us to be strong in the faith. Worry about your own mind. Do the homework and be fully convinced. Number four, honor the Lord in your practice. Honor the Lord in your practice, verses six to nine. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. For no one lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, uh, be Lord both of the dead and of the living." When the text says, honor the Lord, I take that to mean we should live and die as if we belong to Jesus. All of life should be lived in respect and reverence for Christ. We don't belong to ourselves. We we don't live or die independently of Jesus. Notice there again in verse 7, none of us live to ourselves. We live and move and have our being in Christ. So whichever path we take, according to our conscience, we to do it giving thanks to God and knowing that our life and our death belong to Him. He's Lord over both. When it comes to talking about politics and race, one of the places things go wrong is that we discover we have a difference of opinion, and almost the next thing people begin to do is judge and infer motive. You voted this way, that must mean you wanted fill in the blank. You, you believe in this kind of idea, that must mean you, you desire this thing. Let's just make it a little bit more concrete. In principle, I support reparations. I, I think it is an application of the biblical principle of restitution. A wrong has been committed. It's when they empower of those who committed the wrong to make restitution. Just in broad principle, that's ironclad biblical logic, I think. That doesn't mean every policy proposal for reparations, I think, is a good one. There we're in sort of disputable matters, matters of conscience, matters matters of freedom, matters of wisdom. One guy might argue for this and against that and vice versa. But you know what I've almost always been accused of? Just trying to talk about that subject at a level of principle? There's almost always somebody who comes along and says, You want white people money. That's your motive. You want to take from people who worked hard for what they have and you don't want to work, you just want to take their stuff. I don't want your stuff. That ain't my motive. My motive is righteousness and the glory of God in the restitution and restoration of human beings and human flourishing. Because I think that's what the Bible's after. And I'm going to give thanks to God if there are never any reparations, which has like been all my life so far. (laughs) And I'm going to give thanks to God if there is. It's just an illustration. I'm just using it as an illustration, not that any of you have to take my view of reparations. You're free to disagree and to have your own opinion. What we shouldn't do is judge each other's motive and condemn each other based upon a motive that we assume, I assume, we ought to assume of each other that we are taking the view that we take in order to honor the Lord, whether it's for or against. And that's vital to the harmony of the church. So here's the question. When you look at your brother or sister who has a different view than your own on racial issues or politics here at ARC, do you remind yourself That they are taking their view to honor the Lord because they live and die for Him. Is that your assumption about their motive? This is the motive we're all meant to have as Christians. Number five, fifth strategy. Think of your own judgment to come. Think of your own judgment to come. That's what we see in verses 10 to 12. Paul asked that question in verse verse 10, excuse me. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why, or you, why do you despise your brother? For you will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, each of us, each of us will give an account of himself, of himself, of himself to God. You see, beloved, if we really took judgment day seriously, we wouldn't be worried about the judgment of others. If we took judgment seriously, we'd be too concerned about our own appearance before Christ to get too worked up about inconsequential opinions that other people hold. Let verse 12, ring in your ears. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That means each one of us will have to answer to God for the opinions that we hold and the actions we take based upon those opinions. Sometimes people act like there's no accountability for opinions. They act as if they can think anything they like without any consequence. But beloved, your your heart and your mind is on the screen at the drive-in. God is laying it all bare before his sight. Has a perfect assessment of our thoughts and our opinions and our motives. Because He's God and He's infinite and His judgment is searching. And what we really want before God is a clean heart and a clean mind and opinions that really do honor Him so that our intent actually leads to the impact that we desire. If we intend to honor Him, our thoughts and our actions do in fact honor Him by His grace. So let us think more of that day when we will meet Christ one-to-one. And when He will sit as judge. And we will give an account for our lives. Now there are some of us who on that day will go to Christ and appear before Him and, and we will say to Jesus I have one plea. I have one argument. I have one appeal in my case before you. And that is that you died for me. You bled for me. You suffered God's judgment in my place. And you promised that if I turned away from my sin and I put my faith in you, then all of your righteousness would count as mine. And your blood would cleanse me of all of my sin and I would be accepted by you. That's my plea, that you promised to accept me if I trusted in you. And God will say, enter into my joy. Come into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. And there may be some here this morning when you imagine that day when you will appear before Christ and you will give an account for your Christ, for, for your life, but you have never put your faith in Jesus, then that's going to go very differently for you. You'll appear before Christ as judge, and and you will make your plea. And, And it will be any number of things, like I worked hard, I raised my family, I tried to do right, I tried to treat people right, and I tried to live right. I had some rules. See, here were my rules and my opinions that I lived by, and I think they're pretty good. And Jesus, the Bible says will say on that day to you, if you are looking to be right before God by what you have done, Jesus will say on that day, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. Don't be that person. Turn away from your righteousness. Turn away from your opinions. Turn away from your sin. And make that one plea. Jesus, you promised that if I trusted in you and followed you in faith and accepted you as my Lord and Savior who takes away my sin and gives me his righteousness, you promised I would be accepted by you and welcome into your kingdom. Make that your plea, make that your confession, and eternal life and forgiveness and righteousness with God will be yours forever. Switch sides, break up with yourself and place your faith in Jesus. We will all give an account on that day. Number six. It's the sixth strategy in welcoming each other. Resolve not to be a stumbling block for others. Resolve not to be a stumbling block for others. Look with me in verses 13 to 16. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. We'll jump down to verses 20 and 21. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. There's a tension in in these verses. On the one hand, these verses verses teach that nothing to the Christian who receives it with thanksgiving, nothing is in itself unclean. A glass of wine with a meal, a nice steak, that's not unclean. A glass of, or a a plate of of grass if you're a vegetarian. (laughs) It's been washed, it's not unclean. (laughs) All right? So on the one hand, we are free people to enjoy all God's good blessings. However, here's the tension. We must also recognize that we should use our freedom to express love to others. To use the language of verse 15 and 20, we should not use our freedom in a way that destroys the one for whom Christ died or destroys the work of God. That sandwich Is not more important than this person's soul. The work that God is doing to help a weaker Christian in the faith grow, that that is spiritual, supernatural work that's going on according to the word and the spirit. That work is not meant to be uh, hindered because I want to flaunt my freedom. That is not loving. And so the text here says, no, in love then, what you want to do is you want to pull back your freedom. You are free to do it. It's clean to you. It's not sin to you. But if you did it in front of that person or with that person, you would be causing that person to stumble spiritually and to be harmed spiritually. Don't do that. How do we apply that at ARC to politics and conversations about race? I mean, this is one example in racial conversations, there are people easily angered, hurt, and tempted to sin by language that sometimes use. They hear a word or hear a phrase that itself is not sinful. The phrase social justice is not sinful. The phrase personal responsibility is not sinful. But because they have a rule about such language, whether it should be used or not used, even though the rule's not in the Bible. Because they have that rule, they are made to stumble when they hear it. So if a person feels free to use that language, does so knowing it would hurt that person of weaker conscience, verse 15, they're not walking in love. So so there are times when the loving thing to do is to, to limit our word choice, to look for language that doesn't cause someone to stumble knowing that God has began a work in them and will carry it on until the uh, completion of the day of Christ Jesus, but we don't want to hinder that work. And so the question becomes, is that an active principle in our conversations as church members about politics or about race and racism? That we're going to speak as an example, though we're free to speak in many ways, we're going to speak in a way that doesn't cause others to stumble, or act in a way that doesn't cause others to stumble. But now, if you're the person who would try to use this principle as a person with weaker conscience to exert control over those who are free in this regard, you're not acting loving either. That's called manipulation. You need to go back to strategies one through five and work your way through those again. Why would you want to bind the conscience of a brother or sister to your rules when Christ has set them free? That's the question for the person with weaker conscience. Number seven it's important that we understand the true nature of the kingdom that we understand the true nature of the kingdom. I get that from verses 17 to 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing, upbuilding, excuse me. When when we fail to accept each other based on opinions of men, we we really fail to understand what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom is not about man-made rules for eating and drinking. Paul addresses this in Colossians 2 as well, around verses 20 or so. Those rules have no power to subdue the flesh. They have no power to, to bring us into kingdom living. The kingdom is Deeper than man-made rules. The kingdom of God is about God the Holy Spirit working genuine righteousness, peace, and joy in a person. It is about living in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit as we commune with God the Holy Spirit and commune with Christ through Him. And the text says here in verse 18, anyone who serves Jesus this way, in a Spirit-filled way, anyone who serves Jesus this way finds a welcome from God and a welcome from other people too. You know, it's hard to despise somebody who bears the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and so on. If you find a person who's got a problem with someone who bears the fruit of the Spirit, Okay, the problem is not with the person bearing the fruit of the Spirit, but with the person who has a problem with that kind of person. You know that that person is not operating according to the kingdom. And this is vital, beloved. It it is important for us to recognize that in order to live a kingdom life, we have to live a Spirit-filled life. We have to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We have to call upon Him to bear His fruit in our lives. We have to develop a sensitivity to the Spirit according to His Word and prayer and interaction with the saints as the Spirit gives us gifts and, and as He works through us to build the body up. And that's what this text aims for. It says there at that last verse that we might make for peace and mutual upbuilding. That comes by understanding what the kingdom is like. It's like being controlled by God's Spirit and bearing the character that God himself has. This is the secret to our harmony. This is the secret to our unity. This is the secret to our ability to talk about hard things that most people say you shouldn't talk about in polite company. It's whether or not we're being controlled by the spirit. And there's so much flesh in political and racial conversations, isn't there? Flesh comes fast, comes forward real fast in, in anger. Comes forward real fast in partisanship. Flesh f- comes forward real fast in, in grudges and unforgiveness. We have to have these conversations if we're going to really know each other and bear witness in these areas. But we only should have these conversations in the power of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. So when you think of your political and racial positions and your conversations with others, here's the question. Are you calling others to obey man-made rules or are you calling them into deeper life with the Holy Spirit? Are you calling them to obey some racial litmus test or political litmus test? Are you calling them to bear the fruit of the Spirit even as they differ in opinion? Number eight, we almost there. Keep a quiet and clean conscience. Keep a quiet and clean conscience. That's what we see in verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The first thing to see in these couple of verses is that there are some things that should be kept between the individual Christian and their God. One of those things is faith, not saving faith, not the profession of faith in Christ when we first repented, but here faith is being used as a reference to how we live in those matters of conscience, in those matters of opinion and disputable things, what we believe to be right and what we do as a consequence in matters of freedom. Those are really issues between you and God. Are are not issues between you and the Christian sitting next to you. That Christian sitting next to you, as we already said, doesn't have a right to judge you. It should be building you up. And, and together we should be celebrating each other's freedom. We want our conscience bound by the word of God and bound to God himself. So that in a very real sense, there's an aspect of the Christian life that is personal between you and Jesus. And this text says, keep some things to yourself. And the result of that is a clean conscience. We have no reason to blame or judge ourselves for for wrongdoing. If we do the things we believe to be right in matters of freedom, then our conscience excuses us. It, It applauds us. It affirms us that we are doing right. But now, if we do things that we think personally to be wrong for us, the Bible says that does not come from faith, and whatever does not come from faith is sin. Don't violate your conscience. Do what's right according to your conscience until you're perhaps convinced of a better way by the Scripture. But obey your conscience. It's God's good gift to keep us away from sin. It is an act of faith. If if your conscience won't let you do a certain thing, politically speaking, for example, won't let you vote a certain way, then don't vote that way. Obey your conscience until it's shaped by the word of God. Number nine, we're down to chapter 15 now. Build up your neighbor. Build up your neighbor. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul comes back to the strong in faith now. That's those who don't have a lot of rules but enjoy their freedom in matters of opinion. And I think as I, as I meditate on this chapter, I think Paul is doing something clever. When he addresses those of you who are strong in faith, I mean, there aren't many Christians who would not want to think of themselves as strong in faith. Is it? We all want to be in that group. We don't, we don't want to be in the weak in faith group. And so I think this is an appeal, a subtle appeal to the whole church and and maybe to the pride of Christians to want to think of themselves as strong. They say, okay, if you're strong in faith, here's your obligation. Bear with the failings of the weak and don't live to please yourself. If you're strong in faith, then you can die to yourself and you can look to your neighbor and you can live for your neighbor's good to build them up, not judge them, not tear them down, but to build them up. And why should you do that? Well, again, Jesus is the pattern. Notice, for Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, Jesus is on that cross and people are mocking him and spitting on him and reviling him. He's been beaten, not because he did any sin, but because we did. What should have fallen on us fell on him. He's our substitute. And Paul says, you, we need to keep looking at the cross and applying that to this question of accepting or welcoming our brothers and sisters. So if the weak revile you, if they're angry with you, if they speak ill of you, like Christ, bear it. If if there are other kinds of failings, an attempt to insert legalism into your relationship with them, don't let yourself be bound to legalism, but bear with them. Welcome them. The, The Bible says here we have an obligation to do so. Holy Spirit was editing the sermon. I'm going to leave that alone. Christ is our pattern. He was reproached in our place. The question becomes, what would it look like for you and I to do this with someone we understand to have a weaker conscience than us? To bear with them as a gospel obligation. Number 10. Final strategy. Make the church's harmony and God's glory your explicit goal. Make the church's harmony and God's glory your explicit goal and you'll be one who is working to welcome one another. We see this in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That means the the, the whole Bible written at least 2,000 years ago was written for us. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity does not last by chance, beloved. Harmonious relationships do not come with a snap of the finger. Unity and harmony require that we actively and prayerfully work for them. And when we work together for unity and harmony notice the result, it ends up in glorifying God our Father. The greatness of God is seen in the harmony and the peace and the togetherness of the church. And notice here, the togetherness that we are called to is according to Christ and according to the Scriptures. One of the mistakes I'm convinced that churches slip into is is that the harmony is defined either officially or unofficially by someone's opinion. And so that churches become democratic churches and churches become Republican churches and churches become, have been white churches and black churches. we got all kinds of ways of segregating ourselves and at the bottom of that is not the Bible. At the bottom of that is opinion. At the bottom of that is someone's preference. When the Bible calls us to something greater and something better, and that is to die to self, to die to opinion, to die to preference, to die to majority status, to die to being stronger in the faith so that we might welcome one another and, according to the Scriptures, pursue harmony in Christ. And in that harmony, people from all kinds of nationalities, different ages, different classes, different political stripes and cultural stripes, in that harmony amidst all of that diversity, God is praised. God is glorified. He's seen to be the great God that He is. This means we can't be so woke that we want to accept people who ain't, quote, woke. And this means we can't be so conservative, which is not a word in the Bible, by the way, That we won't accept people who see themselves as progressive. Another word, not in the Bible, by the way. This means that we we can't be so tied to our perspective on race and culture and class and politics that we lose our tie to each other and our tie to Christ. Christ. Those things have to be submitted to the lordship of Christ and sifted by the scripture. Because we have a higher calling than political unity. We have a higher calling than cultural or ethnic unity. We have a higher calling than any kind of unity apart from the gospel. We are called to be united in Christ, to be his body, to be one people who may think different thoughts, but find a way to welcome each other and to glorify God. One of the new members asked me a question in her membership interview that in 15 or 20 years of doing membership interviews, I'd never been asked. She asked me, have you noticed any patterns in who is leaving the church and why? It's a great question. I have thought about that question a lot, but I've never been asked that question. I loved it. My answer was this, it's my opinion, don't judge me. I think people have left for a variety of reasons, some good, some bad. But if there's a pattern, I think it's that people on the left, politically, culturally, think we're too far right, and people on the right think we're too far left. And it seems to me that the Lord has been trimming the poles, removing the extremes. Because oftentimes at those poles, what we're really finding is not just left-right political ideas that can be debated, but what we're really finding at those poles is a refusal to accept the so-called other side. And at that point, we've already forgotten there's only one side. It's Christ, and we are united to him. I want us to be careful, beloved, as we have these conversations. I want us to have the conversations that we're we're free to have the conversations. But I I want us to be careful to have the conversations in a way that preserves welcoming each other. And I want us to have the conversation in a way that challenges judgment of one another and a refusal to accept each other. And anything else that pulls at the fabric of the body of Christ, we're meant to be one. That's hard work, but it's worth it because it means the peace of the church, the joy of the church, the upbuilding of the church, and most importantly, it means that God would be glorified. If you've ever wondered how you might glorify God, welcome each other. Accept each other in Christ. Put Romans 14 to 15 into practice. And the text says, God will be glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we are a new church. You know that about us. And um, we believe you've been doing a mighty work among us. We thank you for the ways in which you've allowed us to serve our neighbors and send missionaries. We thank you for the ways you've allowed us to encourage each other in the faith, and to build each other up. We thank you, Lord, for all the, the births in the church and the marriages and the various ways in which you've been adding to our number. But we, we pause to acknowledge that, that uh, we've not always accepted each other very well. We've not always welcomed each other. And sometimes when we've welcomed each other, it's been a setup to argument, to dispute about opinions. And Lord, we, we wish to be honest. We are, we are sometimes a judgmental people. We think hard thoughts about our brothers and sisters who differ from us. Some of us think hard thoughts about people on the opposite end of the spectrum. Others of us feeling a little bit more self-righteous think hard thoughts that anybody thinks there is a spectrum. One says, I'm of Paul. One says, I'm of Apollos. Another says, I'm of Jesus. And we create divisions and dissensions and hard feelings. We believe this has affected our fellowship, and uh, we believe that in some cases we have made slander and gossip respectable, by entertaining it, by amening it, and not redirecting it or challenging it. We have sometimes hurt the reputations of others by judging their motives. We have sometimes hurt the, the freedom and the expressing, expression of faith of others by attempting to bind them to our rules. We have made laws to protect your laws. And we have doubly fenced ourselves in to legalism. So teach us again the language of grace. And teach us to live as free people. Because Christ has set us free. And teach us by your spirit and your grace and the encouragement of the scriptures to welcome each other gladly, eagerly, deeply from the heart. Not to disputation over doubtful matters, but to welcome to each other into the kingdom of God and the unity of the spirit and the joy of fellowship with you. Help us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.